Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It has been quite some time that many states have implemented their stay-at-home orders, and right now, the quarantine fatigue is real. Researchers analyzing smartphone data are finding that more Americans are venturing out despite these stay-at-home orders. Work trips have remained about the same, but personal trips are starting to increase, and so are trips between county and state lines. There's also some confusion as states announce plans to open back up. Some think that they can start easing up on staying at home. The U.S. has never ordered so many to stay at home all at once, and we might be seeing the limits that citizens are willing to handle. For more on quarantine fatigue, we'll talk to Catherine Shaver, reporter at The Washington Post. They've been looking at the location data from our smartphone apps, and basically on any day when a phone travels more than a mile, they assume that that phone is not staying home that day, that it made a trip. And they've been looking at this since middle of March when these stay-at-home orders began to take effect. And the data is aggregated, it's anonymous, or not tracking where you and your cell phone are individually going. But as they started to look at it, the percentage of people staying home or the percentage of their phones staying home grew gradually for several weeks after mid-March. And then it kind of plateaued at about 33 to 34% of the country on average. But what really worried them was starting the week of April, 13th, they noticed that the percent started to decline. And in fact, by the end of the week, April 17th, it had dropped to 31% on average nationwide. So they're really worried about this shift in momentum. And the reason they're really worried is it's not like people started going back to work. The percentage of trips that were non-work trips pretty much stayed the same. But the number of trips that people were taking for personal reasons, going out to the store, maybe going, you know, driving out to a park to take a walk, those are the trips that went up. And so that's what really concerned them, what there was this shift in momentum of people who apparently are getting restless, bored, lonely, and really starting to venture out more. And it's pretty noteworthy. I mean, really, this is the first pandemic that many of us have experienced that, you know, everybody always goes back to the Spanish flu of 1918. That's so long ago. And really, this hasn't been done in the modern era. Nobody knows how much people will tolerate. There's other countries that have lockdown orders that have happened before, but the United States doesn't really do that. And we don't know how much people will take. What I found was really interesting was the public health experts I spoke with said, we know how long people are willing to maybe stay quarantined in their house. Like during H1N1, some people were quarantined. During SARS-1, some people were quarantined. But usually that's for about 14 days to 21 days max. And those are usually such targeted quarantines that local health officials can check in with folks every day and say, how are you feeling? Just a reminder, you need to stay isolated, keep going. And that's how they prevent quarantine fatigue in those situations. But you're right. Nobody has any idea how on a nationwide scale, when you don't have somebody calling you every day and saying, keep going, nobody knows how long people are going to be willing to put up with cabin fever for the greater good or to protect my family. So they're very intrigued by all of this. And what do they need to do to kind of keep people going in these extraordinary circumstances? It's so tough, even for health officials and local government officials it would be almost impossible, probably the wrong way to approach it if they said, you know what, guys, we're really going to be locked down until June. That's why you were getting these kind of, well, the order's extended until May 15th. Oh, the order's extended to May 30th. Because if you just say, hey, we're gone for two months, 
people are going to start rebelling initially. And then beyond that, you know, you see some other states starting to reopen thing. There could be a little bit of that kind of jealousy thing almost like why can they go out and play and we can't. So I'm sure you're going to start seeing this a lot more everywhere. And the confusion that sows also some governors are starting to say, well, we're formulating those plans. We will start opening soon. And people are probably taking that as well. I can start easing my own restrictions now. I'm wearing my face mask. Let's just go out now. I spoke with one public health expert who said it's kind of like a kid right before Christmas. You start hearing about governors talking about reopening economies and people start thinking, well, really, how bad could it be? I'll put on my face mask. I'll stay six feet away from people. But they say they're really concerned because the more people are venturing out, the more likely they are to be in places like grocery stores or drugstores. And you can do all you can to try to limit your exposure, but you are still increasing the risk of transmission. Beyond that, it takes a little bit of time to gather the data and then crunch the numbers. We won't know for a couple of weeks, let's say, if these people that have started moving a little bit early might have come down with coronavirus, increased number of cases or hospitalizations or deaths. We won't know that for some time as well. The medical experts I talked to said they're very curious about whether the increase in travel is going to lead to an increase in hospitalizations and deaths. They say they can't really look at whether it leads to an increase in just cases overall because testing is still so limited that that's not really a reliable indicator. But it's going to take at least several weeks to start seeing if more people end up in the hospital or more people end up dying. And then they might be able to look back and say, hey, that's when that county started to have people venture out more. That's when that state lifted restrictions and people started going out about. Catherine Shaver, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another big thing, another big thing happening this week. Restaurants in Georgia, Tennessee, and Anchorage, Alaska have begun to reopen, and all eyes will be on them to see how the rollout goes. In Georgia, the state government has issued 39 guidelines that restaurants must follow, including wearing face masks, screening employees and patrons for signs of illness, and even sign-in sheets if the info is needed later for contact tracing. For more on how some restaurants are beginning to open their doors, we'll talk to Chloe Sorvino, writer at Forbes. I think some workers are scared still. I think some Georgians are coming out, though, to support their restaurants that have been opened. I've focused much of my reporting on what Waffle House has been doing because they play such an interesting role in Georgia and Georgia politics. It's this beloved cult-following diner chain, 24 hours. It has this rowdy-at-night environment, but it also has this reputation of opening up really quickly after a crisis or after a disaster. And the chain's been headquartered there for 65 years, and the longtime kind of patriarch of the family that owns the chain, Joe Rogers Jr., was actually one of the, from what I understand, the only restaurant representative on the 20-person committee that Governor Brian Kemp was using to create the guidelines to reopen. And in an extensive interview with me, Joe talked a lot about how it was so serious. He was pushing from this from March to reopen. And I think you're seeing that and what's been happening and how this, this opening happened more quickly than some restaurant owners or maybe salon owners or other business owners in Georgia might have realized. The governor, I guess, set out 39 guidelines that restaurants have to follow. I'm assuming, obviously, masks and gloves, things like that. So what are some of these guidelines, the way things are going to be changing for the restaurants? Salad bars aren't going to really exist in a post-corona world. Neither will buffets. In Georgia, these guidelines are being decided to state by state. So in Georgia, they're doing a per capita limit by per square foot for each restaurant. 
So I believe it's only 10 patrons per 500 square feet in the dining room. There's going to be no self-service anymore. So you can't pour your own drink. You can't put your ketchup on your hot dog anymore. They're going to be encouraging anything even as small as having silverware rolled in a napkin beforehand, not presetting tables. These are going to be very, very specific things. But, you know, I have to say, there are a fair amount of experts that say, you know, these guidelines don't go far enough and are questioning how safe this will continue to be in each situation. You mentioned a little bit about the political part of this, and there was one of the restaurants there in Georgia, an Atlanta-based restaurant called the Original Hot Dog Factory, who said you know, they were going to open up, but they got so much blowback from the community. They were fielding calls from local officials who said, you're moving a little too fast. So they actually didn't open up after all. And even early reports from what's been going on, there's been very, very limited patrons visiting some of these restaurants so far. I've heard that there's a little bit of backlash if you are going out right now. I mean, it depends. Waffle House has told me that, you know, their customers are thrilled to be back and thrilled to be feeling that taste of home. I also know Waffle House obviously is really located on these key highways. And I'm sure there are a lot of truckers right now that are bringing food, transporting it across America and these supply chains who are happy to, when they get to Georgia, to go into some of these locations and have some rest. But I think there are a lot of communities that are still very concerned. I don't know if this was in one of the Georgia guidelines, but I think it was in one of the Alaska guidelines where they said that a restaurant's going to have to have a log of every customer's first and last name and contact phone number mm-hmm. so that, you know, if they need any contact tracing or something that has to be done after, they have that information. The Washington Post, I guess, spoke to Hugh Atchison. You know, you've seen him on Top Chef. He's mm-hmm. one of the big major stars. He has a bunch of restaurants there in Georgia. You know, he said, I can't have people I employ and work with be used as sacrificial lambs and all this. You know, what if somebody gets sick? So, I mean, that's just this other part. Do these restaurants have a liability in this? You know, could somebody sue them later on down the line if they contracted COVID-19 at their restaurant? From what we've seen from what's been reopening around Hong Kong, for example, is exactly that. The restaurants that have apps will be, I think, making this transition a little bit easier moving forward because so much of this will want to be seamless. You are going to have to go into a restaurant when you take your name, you know, sign a waiver and give information in case someone in that restaurant was later found out to be sick with this virus and you have to be contacted. These are really serious concerns. And I just want to highlight that, you know, for the workers, this is a really, really difficult decision to have to make my dealings with Waffle House. They tell me that their workers are really struggling and they really want to be coming back to work. But at the same time, there are a lot of other people I'm I'm talking to who just aren't ready, who are concerned. I think you're seeing that across the food system and across, for that matter, the the front lines in terms of meat plant workers, other fast food restaurants, delivery services. Chloe Servino, writer at Forbes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally for this week, some things might never be the same after going through this pandemic. One such thing that could change is grocery shopping. The current crisis has accelerated the use of personal shoppers on services like Instacart, Amazon Fresh, and Walmart Grocery. Supermarkets also operate on the psychology of shopping and spending as much time as possible in-store. And with social distancing, that could also change the way things are done. Stores could expand warehouse space to allow personal shoppers to quickly pick up product for delivery and we could also see smaller stores with more attentive personnel. For more on what supermarkets could look like after the pandemic, we'll talk to Ian Bogost, professor at Georgia Tech and contributor to The Atlantic. Online grocery shopping has basically been a luxury up until now. About 3% of American grocery shopping takes place online through services like Walmart Grocery or, or Instacart today. 
compared to over half of book sales and uh, something like 25 to 30 percent of apparel sales. And one of the reasons for it is that it's expensive to do your shopping online, or at least, at least it was before a month ago. There are fees, but the substitutions are wacky. You've got to be home or you've got to be able to take delivery of your perishables in some manner. So the convenience or the apparent convenience of shopping online kind of never really translated fully to supermarket shopping. And now suddenly there's this enormous explosion of interests, both for the safety of the shopper and for the safety of the food service workers, too, who are maybe at greater risk than anyone with all the people coming in and out of grocery stores. So you mentioned some of the big players, Amazon Fresh, Walmart Grocery, and Instacart. What kind of growth have they seen out of this? Instacart told me that they've seen something like a 150% increase in their order volume over the last couple of weeks. There's reports that Amazon has seen 50-fold increases in their food delivery service. Companies like Instacart have tried to hire hundreds of thousands of new shoppers. Walmart Grocery has also indicated enormous demand. They just can't keep up with demand. And so they've even had to curtail sign up some of these services because they just can't keep up with the flood of demand. And one of the reasons for that is that the grocery store is not a warehouse. It's not a place that was built to fulfill online orders. It was for you and me to go and kind of browse and, you know, and look at things and pick the produce and feel the avocados and all of that sort of thing. So the supply chain, the logistics of picking things, of getting them to people, all of that has to transition. And it might take a long time. For the consumers, you mentioned it in your article, grocery stores operate on this psychology of shopping. As you mentioned, certain products, end caps, things just yeah. designed to make you buy more. Yeah. This is going to change. Uh, people don't want to even spend that much time in the grocery store. They want to be in and out now. So how, you know, how, yeah, how will that part of it change? It's so strange because on the one hand, people say like, oh, it's such a chore to go shopping. I can't, you know, if I didn't have to do this, like I'd have more time. But actually, we actually really like going to the grocery store as well. People like to be in the, in that space. They like to pick out the things they're going to eat. They like to have chosen the cantaloupe that they're going to eat and have, you know, someone else pick it for them. And so we're a bit mixed in our minds about what we want and what we don't. And that's partly because we've spent the last hundred years or so in the self-service supermarket. That's an idea that had to be invented. It was Piggly Wiggly that did so in about 1916. And before that, you would have gone to the greengrocer or the baker or the butcher and asked them for something and they would have given it to you kind of across the counter. So part of the difficulty of this transition is actually that we're in our minds mixed about it. And as we see grocery sales online increase from that 3%, it's not as though we're going to get to 80 or 90%. The folks that I've talked to in the industry suggest that if we reach 20, 25% of grocery shopping online in the next three to five years, or maybe even sooner because of the pandemic, that might be a realistic target, which, which means that people are still going to go to the grocery store and they're still going to want to. So we're, you know, this is not the end of the grocery store right. by any means, but it does mean a, a transition. And for shoppers, in much the same way that you kind of have thought about apparel buying differently, like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just order a couple pair of shoes and then I'll send back the one that doesn't fit or that I didn't like. That attitude had to evolve, too. It evolved over about 20 years of online retailing, and, and now we feel comfortable with it. And a similar kind of transition is going to take place for the grocery shopper. So one of the interesting notes that you wrote up that a new attitude about supermarkets could change and the way we approach food shopping in general. One of the things we've kind of seen already with, let's say, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods in its early heydays, this either niche market or a lot more personalization, let's say with a Trader Joe's type of thing, you know, you can yep, talk to somebody right. more approachable. We've seen all of this. So this could increase that trend. And the other trend that we've seen in the restaurant industry with these ghost kitchens, basically right. they're online order only and it's just a little kitchen it could be anywhere on a strip mall is banging out all of these great meals. 
This could also be something where supermarkets or a subdivision of a supermarket can operate on so that they can do only these online orders. And there's a couple of ways this might play out. We've already seen some grocery locations close down entirely to the public in the pandemic and go just to online ordering. The problem with that is that they're still laid out for consumers. So a kind of ghost grocery, the equivalent of a ghost kitchen, would probably be organized in a different way. It would be organized for rapidness of pick pack, and then you'd get it out either to the curb or with a runner to a home or apartment for delivery. And you could do that by converting existing groceries, which are very centrally located. They're near a lot of communities. And so the idea of getting perishables quickly to consumers might be easier. We might also see those same kinds of stores expand their private space. Like there's already a lot of storage space and warehouse space behind the scenes. And those spaces could be reconfigured in a kind of more half and half style way. Now, if we do see that kind of thing happen, in my mind, it benefits the largest chains with the largest spaces, you know, the Walmart supercenters yeah. and Costco's more than the Trader Joe's. But at the same time, because there might be this sort of shift, a willingness to be open to, you know, recommendation or getting what's available, especially in the short term, then there's already been a bit of a, a rise in sort of specialty food services, you know, the, the sort of newfangled butchers that work the way that they, they might have done in the 1910s or something. And people like to walk to a local venue and get something fresh from someone they know. And, you know, that might appear to be kind of a, a rarefied kind of hipster consumer attitude today, but it is possible to imagine it expanding to become more general purpose. Another thing that we might see, and you know, this is really a kind of a labor management issue more than it is a consumer trend issue, is that the way that these personal shoppers, as Instacart calls them, are currently construed is just as gig workers, you know, just as people you hire for a small fee to go and fetch your groceries for you. And if that role became more respected, people were willing to pay more for it and companies were willing to employ it in a different way then it's more of a full service experience where maybe you get to know someone who kind of knows what your family wants and needs and they're able to pick the things that would make sense that, that are currently available in the store in a way that solves that kind of substitution problem that a lot of folks have had with online shopping. And you mentioned in the article, I was kind of laughing about it, that it seems like Americans before they were, you know, no substitutions, I need what I need. And now because, hey, yeah. we can't find toilet paper yeah. here and there, we're a lot more willing to make those concessions. And I totally agree because I feel like I've gone through that myself personally. It's been a really, really long time, really since World War II and then the Depression before it, when a consumer America couldn't get kind of exactly what they wanted all the time. So we came to expect, no, that's not my breakfast cereal, or I don't like the juice with pulp in it, actually. But now being forced to kind of contend with what's available, now you feel extremely grateful. And if that attitude sticks, which is extremely debatable, I mean, you know, it's possible that next week when the supply chain shifts a little bit and when, you know, more people are there, oh, like, I'm done with that attitude. But maybe we actually want to train ourselves to use this pandemic as an opportunity to rethink and reconsider and and reinvent our consumer and retail habits, in which case it might be much more sustainable in terms of employment and service and that kind of thing. What we wouldn't want to do would be to, you know, kind of turn these shoppers, these sort of experts back into servants that then are just responsible for providing a new kind of luxury service that replaces the old one. Ian Bogost, professor at Georgia Tech and contributing writer to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.